are you sensitive to God's timing? If you're not on God's timetable, you're not going to be led by the Spirit. You are not going to be a recipient of that anointing of His Spirit. And you are not going to be able to serve God, even though you may desire to. If you're not following His timing, you are living in the flesh. Take out your Bible and look with me to Sephania chapter 1. And now we're ready for that 12th verse. Now, here we see something. God is behind that day of the Lord. He is going to allow difficult, very difficult things to take place in this world. God is not the author of these, but He will allow them and He will use them for His purposes and His glory. And we know prophetically as we enter these last days, especially after the Antichrist has revealed himself in what's called the abomination of desolation, we see that God is going to move to bring spiritual change to Israel. He is going to use trials and tribulation to capture his people's attention. I'm talking about Israel, the Jewish people, and over in order that they become receptive to what God is going to do. Look, if you would, to verse 12, where it says, And it shall come about at that time. Now, normally that expression means something good. At that time, at God's desired purpose is going to be fulfilled at that time. He says, I will seek Jerusalem. We've learned something. Oftentimes, Jerusalem is used in regard to worship. He's looking for those who are truly seeking to worship Him. Those who are sensitive to the will of God, the purposes of God. He says, it shall come about at that time, I will search Jerusalem with candles. Now, if you come from a Jewish background, probably what's going through your mind is Passover. When there is a search conducted with candles, looking to rid the house of any leaven, anything that is contrary to what God says is right and proper for that time. We know at Passover, that which is allowed at other times is forbidden. And Passover is preparation. And therefore, God is searching. He's searching with those candles. That requires one to do so solely and also very carefully. When you search with a candle, you're not going to miss something. It shows a separation, that God is going to make a distinction. He says in this verse, that I will search Jerusalem, and I will do so with candles. And I will visit, there's that same word, 
for visiting or punishing. It speaks about God being committed to bring about a change. And who is God going to punish? Those who are set in their ways. Now, two words appear here. One has to do with something that you hold dear. A confession. A belief. This word can be used for a lifestyle. But what's interesting is the one that precedes it. In modern Hebrew, it's simply a word which means frozen. And God says He is going to visit those, punish those, who we might understand it, are unchanging, are set in their ways, cannot be changed, are not willing to hear from God, see His will, and respond to it. So He's going to visit those individuals that are set on their ways, who say in their heart, and notice what they say, the Lord, He does not do good or evil. What it's saying is that God is, irre is irrelevant, not relevant for us. Individuals that believe that God isn't sovereign, He's not actively involved, He's simply separate. He has created this world and removed himself. Well, God is showing through Zephaniah. He is going to make known in the last days, that day of the Lord, that he is most relevant. So those who say he doesn't do good or bad, he's not part, he's not sovereign, God is going to visit them. Look at verse 13. And it will come about their wealth. Now, he's going to punish the nations. We're going to see that in this chapter as we conclude, and especially in the next chapter, chapter 2. The day of the Lord is not for Israel. The day of the Lord is for the nations in order that Israel learns about God and that Israel will bring about a change, that they will be submissive, that they will be open to what God will bring about. But we know something. When we speak about the last days in Israel, the word that keeps coming up over and over prophetically is that word remnant. Remnant. There is going to be a minority that respond, that understand the message of God and receive His truth. So it will come about their wealth, speaking of the nations, will be for plunder. And their homes for destruction. They will build homes but they will not dwell within them. They will plant vineyards, but they will not drink of their wine. Now, what's he speaking about? You build, but you don't inhabit. You plant, but you don't receive. All of this, and there's no disagreement, all of this speaks about frustration. You do the work, but there's no outcome to it. Those who... Rebel against God will never know joy, 
They will not know contentment. One of the punishments of God is that frustration. God says that He has peace for us. He has that contentment. But these individuals, they're not going to be receiving that. Look at verse 14. All of this precedes the day of the Lord. Verse 14. For close or near is the day of the Lord, that great day. Close and quickly. In fact, it says, Kerov me'od, very quickly, very soon. The sound of the day of the Lord is a bitter scream there among the mighty. Those who are mighty, those who are strong, they are going to be consumed by this day. For it's a day of His wrath. For that day is a day of trouble and adversity. And then notice this next phrase. Now, you may not know it, but the Hebrew word Shoah is the Hebrew word for holocaust. And it says, literally, from holocaust to holocaust. God is speaking about something that happened in the past that is going to repeat. That pains me. It grieves me. But when we look prophetically, when we look at the teachings of Messiah, the worst time of suffering for Israel, I'm speaking of the Jewish people, is not in the past. I wish it was. But it's in the future. And God is going to allow it. He's not the cause of it. But He's going to allow what the Scripture in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7 says, Etzrahi, a time of trouble for Jacob. He is going to allow it. Why? It's only that time of intense suffering that is going to bring about this spiritual change with His people. If there was another way God would allow it, He would do it. But there's not. And what this is all about is this day of the Lord. Now, that speaks of His wrath. But for Israel, we know that Israel's shielded from the wrath of God. We see that in Revelation chapter 7. Remember the context. The end of chapter 6 of Revelation is that seal, that sixth seal, that speaks about the wrath of the Lamb. And then beginning in chapter 7, we see an angel comes and he says, Don't harm the earth or the trees or anything in it until the servants of God are sealed. Israel's not going to experience God's wrath. But in the midst of that day of the Lord, there is going to be persecution from the Antichrist upon Israel, where we learn that two-thirds are going to perish, will be eternally lost. It's only that remnant. Over and over prophetically, we see that God is going to redeem a remnant. Now, we learned something about the nations. 
Messiah said, the way is narrow and difficult and few find it. That's true for the nations. It's true for Israel. God is not a respecter of persons. Look at verse 15. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and affliction. A day of holocaust to holocaust. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of cloud and fog. Now here again. It's oftentimes helpful to ask, well, how does the sages of old understand this? Darkness, gloom, clouds, and fog. The inability to see, the inability to discern. And I was impressed by one commentator who said this. If Israel waits to the last minute, and it's really not just relevant for Israel. It's true for all people. If we wait until the end, things are going to be very dark, gloomy, cloudy, foggy. We need to respond to the truth now, not then. And so there's difficult times coming where it's going to be hard to perceive. So now the time is to do it. And notice the next thing it says here. A day of the shofar and the blasting. And it means that sounding of the shofar. See, I don't believe that it is by chance these two things go together. Because we're speaking about that which is hard to perceive, that which is hard, difficult to see. But the next thing we talk about is not what we see, but what we hear. We all know that verse. Faith comes by hearing. Let me ask you a question. The shofar. What is the message of the shofar? It's not repentance, but rather it is provision. Now, why do I say that? Well, on the day of the shofar, Yom Teruah, every synagogue throughout the world reads the same thing, the same portion from the Torah. It's about the binding, Akidat Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac. And remember what it says. God is ready to slay that son, his only son. Yes, Ishmael exists. But in regard to the promise and the purpose of God, it's only Yitzchak, not Ishmael. God does not recognize the work of the flesh. He looks to the child of promise. And it's that child of promise that makes all the difference. And Abraham's ready to slay Yitzchak. When that angel speaks to him, and says, do not harm the lad. Abraham's confused. For the last several days, everything that he's done is preparation for this event. And God makes a change. Abraham lifts up his eyes. It's an idiom of prayer. And he sees behind him what God has 
provided. That ram that is caught in the thicket by its horns. See, God provided the ram. This is the first reference to the shofar, which is the horn of a ram. So the sounding of the shofar reminds us of what God has provided for life. God provided that ram so Yitzchak would live. And not just life, but if you look at that, it says in the Scripture, in that same passage in Genesis 22, it says, the Lord sees. Now, some will say He provides, but it literally says He sees. And it's because God looks that He provides. And then there's a really odd verse. It speaks about Abraham possessing the gates of the enemy. That is a Hebrew idiom. When you possess the gate of the enemy, you're victorious. So the message is this. When we hear the shofar, that blast, just what it says here, shofar and trua, this shofar and the sounding of it, we should think and remember what God has provided for victory. God's provision. It's only through what God provides that we can have what the shofar is all about. Now, nothing is written by chance. It is such an advantage to look and see the Scripture in its original language because when I see the word shofar, if you know anything about Hebrew, there are roots. And every Hebrew word is developed from a root. And that word shofar is developed from a word, if I said lit shaper, it's about improvement. What God provides so that we can improve and not just be better, but be perfect. That's what the shofar and the sounding of it announces. Look again at verse 16. The day of the shofar and the sounding upon cities, fortified cities, and upon towers, high towers. Now what it's saying is this. There is an enemy, he is strong, he is prepared, but through God's provision, they will be defeated. The shofar brings victory. Verse 17. God is a God of holiness, of righteousness. And at that right time, God afflicts. And that's what he says he's going to do to the nations. He says, I will afflict man. This is in the broadest sense. And they, it's in the plural now, humanity in other words, they shall walk as blind men. What's he saying? If you don't recognize my provision, when you hear the shofar, if you don't understand what it means, what I provided for victory, then you are blind. You are lost in that darkness and gloom. 
in that cloud, in that fog. And what places us there? What is the danger for us? We'll just keep reading. We don't have to guess. Because against the Lord, they have sinned. Blood, their blood, is poured out as dust. And their flesh as dung, the meaning is upon the ground. What's he saying? If you don't accept God's provision, then you are going to be a recipient of His trouble and that you are going to find blood, your blood poured out upon the ground and is of no value more than manure. Verse 18. Now, notice, he's speaking about the day of the Lord, but we're going to see in our next session how God unites what he did to Assyria that Nahum spoke of and what he's going to do in the last days, the day of the Lord. And he's warning the world, just like he warned Assyria, are you seeking that which saves? Are you a possessor of that which is going to produce life and blessing and goodness and hope. Assyria's was not, and neither is the world. Look at verse 18. Also their silver and also their gold. Idioms for wealth. Their possessions, what they've labored for, what they have sought after. Also, and that word can mean even, even their silver and their gold is not able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. The problem is this. There is so little teaching today about God's wrath. We don't see a biblical God. We don't learn about a biblical Messiah. We only emphasize the things that please us. We do not delve into all the Scripture. There's a pastor in Atlanta of one of the largest churches in America, and he emphasizes the New Testament. That's good. The problem is, that he is very selective in what he says. He states that the greatest revelation, now to me, all of this is God's revelation, all of it. But he emphasizes the Gospels, okay. But what bothers me is this. He says he emphasizes the Gospel. But I've never heard, and I listen to him frequently. Once he said, the people that criticize me probably have never listened to an entire message. I can stand before you right now and before God. I've heard well over 100, probably close to 200 of his messages. I've never heard him speak about the reality of hell. I've never heard him speak about a God that takes vengeance. I've never heard him speak about judgment. 
He does not do what he says when he quotes, I emphasize the gospel. It's all about making people feel comfortable. That is not the prophetic preparation that we need. That is not what Paul taught, Peter taught, or Messiah taught. And it's certainly not what Zephaniah taught. Look at at verse 18. Even their silver and their gold is not able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. And that wrath is going to be manifested in the fire of His zeal. Now, how can we be sure that this is talking about the nations and not Israel? As I interact with people, I'm amazed at how some handle the Word of God, how they interpret it. And I can tell you why. They bring preconceived desires. What they believe or what they want to believe, they allow that to focus them on an interpretation that's not based upon the Scripture. They look at things in the big picture rather than paying attention to all the clues in the text. Look again at this 18th verse. It says, And fire of His zeal, all the earth, not speaking about Israel, this is not a prophecy against Israel. Israel will suffer. All those who reject the promise and the provision of God is going to suffer. But when we look at this and the day of the Lord, and we're going to see this confirmed in chapter 2, it is about the world, the nations. The day of the Lord is upon the nations and its purpose is to teach Israel a message. God is a God of judgment. God moves in this world to punish evil. And the only hope, and this is true for all of us, the only hope is being a recipient of God's grace. Without His mercy, without His forgiveness, there is no hope. You know, hope is a wonderful word. Now, we have to be careful because oftentimes we, we use our understandings of a word rather than the biblical understanding. See, many times we pray hopefully. But what we really say is, God, I hope, and it's really nothing more than, God, I want. Now, a very significant word is the word assurance. It's translated in many different ways. In the New Testament, that one word for assurance can be boldness or confidence. Now, we can be bold and confident if our hope is, is founded upon the promises of God. See, hope is not what you desire, I want, what I just choose to believe. That's not hope. The biblical concept of hope is always, always, always rooted in what God has said, what He has 
promise. Let me give you an example. The Hebrew word for hope is tikva. And we can take that same root and it comes to another meaning. In the book of Genesis, how many rivers were there in the Garden of Eden? Four. And they came together, they gathered in one place. We call that a mikveh, from that same word for hope. And what biblical hope is, is when we bring together the biblical promises of God that we pursue what God has said He's going to do. It's only when we have that type of hope are we going to have confidence, not based upon what I merely want, but on what God has said. Notice what is written here. In the zeal, His zeal with fire, all the earth, all the earth, will be consumed for the end. It's a total consumption. It's an absolute end. And then what's so significant is how this chapter ends. It has a word here for being startled. Something that, that scares you. Now, think for a moment. When you're doing something and something truly scares you, you, you jump. Now that's a, not a pleasant feeling. And what God is saying here is that when His day of the Lord comes, people are going to be placed in that condition of being startled. But it's not for a moment. It is going to be perpetual. See, that's why we talked about this last night. One of the consequences of God's judgment, His wrath, is darkness. It's an idiom for fear. When we're truly afraid, I mean really afraid, we've been startled by something. It's a horrible feeling within. We feel it in the pit of our stomach. That is part of that torment that God is speaking about. And it says this end, which is an eternal end. It's not over. He brings about this change forever. One where those who dwell upon the earth. Now, you know in the book of Revelation that John, he takes much, especially from the prophets. And when we look and study the book of Revelation, we find there's two groups. I've said this frequently. But right here we see one of the bases for it. He writes about those who dwell upon the earth. In the book of Revelation, there's two groups. Those who dwell upon the heaven and those who dwell upon the earth. It has nothing to do where bodily they're located. It's not about location, it's about citizenship. And what God is saying here is that those who dwell upon the earth, that is, are loyal to this world, belonging to this world, citizens of this world, they are going to experience just that. This 
eternal fear forever and ever. We don't want to be people that our citizenship is in this world. We don't want to live and have a character that resembles the characteristic of this world. We don't want to be under the authority of the prince of this world, but rather the prince of peace. We want to follow his character. So when we look here at the end of chapter 1, God is saying, he is a zealous God. That word, as I mentioned last night, can be jealous as well. It speaks of him being passionate and committed to his purposes. And he is looking for a people of zeal. When I think about someone who was zealous for a zeal like God, I think in the book of Numbers, one called Pichas in Hebrew. He saw a man and a woman moving towards a pagan place to do a pagan act of honoring a false god. And he had zeal. And he took that, that spear and he stabbed both of them. Now, God was comforted by that. And we find that Pichas inherited that priesthood. This is a true priest of God that hates unrighteousness, that moves against that which is offensive to God. And all too often, we live in this world, and those things that offend God, those things that God hates, those things that are insulting to His character, we are quiet about. We need to be bold. We need to speak up. We need to show people who truly is our Lord. Who do we belong to? Are we those that, that belong to this world? Or are we those who belong to a kingdom, His kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness? Let me conclude this session with a question. We mentioned last night, Matthew chapter 6, where it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Are you doing that? Are you truly kingdom-minded? And if you are, you are going to be influencing others to live that same way. You are going to want to impact that next generation, your children, your grandchildren. Because if you have any, hear this, if you have any spiritual sensitivity, if you have any discernment prophetically, you can see the world that we're living in is changing drastically in a way that I can't believe. This world is so confused. It doesn't make sense. And the reason why it's so puzzling to me is because more and more we see a satanic perspective for those who are in power today. Those who truly are influencing this world. 
we see the influence of darkness, the influence of deceit. Be ready. We're living at a critical time. Now is the time to put down your spiritual anchor and say, I will not compromise. I will not be led to this direction. I'm going to remain faithful to the Word of God, the instructions of God. See, you don't know how much time you have left. But make that time, whether it's 50 years or 20 years or 5 years or 2 days, make it a praise unto the Lord. How do you do that? By submitting to His truth. Because His truth praises Him. And what we're called to do is to live that, and Rick and I, we mention it frequently. It's so simple. Not necessarily to do, but to understand. We're called to live a praiseworthy life. Why? A praiseworthy life glorifies God. A praiseworthy life points not to yourself, but to God, that you belong to Him and that He is a Lord over all. Now, we may say that we believe that, and I'm sure we do. But what God is doing, He's looking to see who is demonstrating that. What type of influence have you had in your children, your grandchildren, if you have them? Are you an influence for the kingdom of God? support God's people by purchasing items made by them. Merchandise with a meaning, products with a purpose. HolyLandMarketplace.com For more teachings, visit, support, or donate at TorahClass.com Join with us in worship and enjoy God's Word at Seat of Abraham Fellowship.